Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. I've been looking at the news, Pia. <laughs> That's a little... <laughs> watching That's the not news. unusual. And, no, well, unfortunately... It's not Donald Trump or, or, or anything, that, you know, not another indictment. No, I do try to ration my consumption of the news because it is so... Abysmal. It can be a little bit of a downer sometimes on the old mental health. So, uh, but I do, but I did spot this one yesterday. Zoom orders workers back to the office. So, Zoom, the sort of early champions, they're, they're synonymous, li- synonymous with virtualized virtual working. Yeah. How are now saying that um, structured hybrid approach is the most effective way of working and that people living within 50 miles of an office, 80 kilometers, um, should work in person at least twice a week. Quite dare I say, as the topic of ironic, a virtualized <laughs> platform forcing everyone back into, I mean, yeah, a bit bonkers, really. I wonder what's created that to happen. Yes, I wonder. I heard someone on um, on the radio yesterday actually commenting on this, and that from I think their advanced workplace solutions or something like that. And and uh, he's made the really good point. He just said that in their research and their work, things that are forced on people don't tend to work that well. And you know, and the compliance of these things is not great. And obviously, if there's a good, if you're near an office and there's good reasons to go in, you you can go in and you can make the most of it and you can sort that out for yourself. But these, he said, generally these things are, these fail because they're undermined. And they are, as you say, um, this is a little bit of an a bit of an example of corporate absurdity, which we're actually strangely going to be talking about today. We are. We are. I mean, what segue is that? I know exactly. <laughs> Corporate absurdity. So, um, yes, our guest Richard Clayden. He's um, he has an in, yes, he has a varied background, but he's now an academic doctor. Doctor Richard Clayden, and uh, has done uh, a lot of work on this area actually of uh, of how do you deal with and how do people deal with um, with this this sort of slight absurdity that creeps into organisations. So this is a slightly different topic, but uh, Richard will take us into that world. Can't wait to hear what he has to say. Hello and welcome, Richard. Welcome to We Not Me. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm hoping it's going to be, but the thing that isn't pleasurable is where I'm about to hand you, which is straight into the lion's den and to to the Hammond cards. So we'll do that bit first, and then we'll find out more about you. Yes, as you know, Richard, we go straight into this. So um, let us try this one. The worst piece of advice I ever received was, have you ever had any bad advice? Yeah, possibly do a PhD, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which is simultaneously good and bad advice, because having having gone through it, I would never recommend anybody else to go through it. But I'm very glad I've done it. <laughs> and why? So I might just tease that one out. As somebody that is considering doing a PhD, why? It's it's comfortably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Now, that, that was partly because I took a theoretical approach, which is unusual in, in this day and age, and I took a very transdisciplinary approach, which is equally unusual. Um, but if you, if you have that deep curiosity, you just end up – in, in this world of mess where you're trying to pull things together and, and do something. And it, and it is, it's, it drives anxiety and, and it, it's stressful and it's, but you learn something 
um, you become an expert in, in your field. But in the process of doing that, you end up being able to talk to fewer and fewer people about what you know about because you're the only person really taking anything like that as seriously as you. So you feel quite lonely during it as well. But at the end of it, you'll know stuff that, that you're really, really glad that you know. And, and maybe two or three years after the PhD, you can start using that stuff to make a difference in the world. When you come out of therapy. Yeah, it's that, <laughs> it's that translation and interpretation bridge where you have to lose that passion of, of what you've been doing and then interpret it and retranslate it into something that might might be useful in the world. So even when you finished it, you've probably still got another three years of work to do. Digestion, right, interesting. And you mentioned anxiety there, Richard. Where does that come from? What What, what is the source of that anxiety in, in your experience? The, the university giving you the PhD, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just, in, in my, my experience, and more about supervising research projects than, than something I necessarily went through, but myself but when you're the people who are doing a really good job get to this point of crisis about how much work there is and how much new information there is coming in and whether they can turn it all into something meaningful and they have to be coached through that crisis once you want you know that someone you're supervising is going to be really good when they get to that point they call you up and say help and then you help them find some patterns and and then People who don't call you up and say help are probably never going to get to the point where it's it's something fantastic. Interesting. We see this a lot, don't we? There's you want to get to the other side, but there's a there's a messy bit in the middle. I think P. You come sometimes call it the U bend. You've got to go, descend into this darkness to come out the other side in 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 different ways. So I hope I haven't I hope I haven't scared you off, Peter. And I'm doing a PhD. no, no. Um, <laughs> but I I have I made a commitment to myself that I will stop. I will not be working full time when I do it because I did that with my masters, and and they don't call it a marriage breakup award for no reason. It, you know, it's a uh, it's a it's a tough one, try, and trying to balance two children. So anyway, enough about me. Tell us about you, Richard. So give us a give us a a bit of a rundown who you are, um, and how you've come to be who you are today. Uh, I mean, the way the way I tend to describe myself is is in terms of accidental progression. Uh, I regard myself as a, an accidental academic, and and really even sort of an accidental uh, leadership scholar, leadership developer, whatever you'd like to call it. It, it was never a, a passionate approach. It was never something that I, I anticipated doing. It just it just fell into my lap over, over time through a series of circumstances and coincidences. So yeah, historically, I was an artist. I trained as a, as a fine artist and, um, in visual studies originally and worked as, a, as an artist in residence for a while. Um, realized there wasn't too much money in that and then worked as a lang language instructor um, and uh, in in Asia and came back into Europe and, and took a job, uh, really worked as an agent in language instruction in Scandinavia and then turned that into a business on cross-cultural communication and, and those kind of skills rather than teaching English because the Scandinavians don't really need to learn English. They're better with it than most, most native the, language come, speakers. Come the other yes. way, yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, we looked at, we, I started my own business in teaching sort of cross-cultural skills, uh, reading efficiency, so speed reading, uh, writing professionalism and stuff like that within the business setting. And it took off. 
Um, but I was a little bit embarrassed that I only had a fine art degree when I was teaching all of these quite senior people how to do all of this work um, and accepted an offer to do a master's uh, in cross-cultural communication and international management uh, at Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK and was awarded a scholarship to do a PhD in Sydney. Uh, and now that PhD was on uh, organisational irony. It took about six and a half years to finish it. Perhaps why I described it as, as one of the worst pieces of advice I'd ever been given. And, and since then, uh, fell into teaching leadership. I mean, I, I didn't really, leadership wasn't really a component of, of my studies. I mean, it might, it's really, organisational behaviour is, is really where I situate myself, organisational theory. So leadership sits underneath that. But it's not something I, I read much about. And I, I, but I got asked to teach a leadership program, an MBA. You know, I got asked to, um, was, was inher- inherited the program and was sitting reading the textbook that I'd inherited and the, and the slides that I'd inherited, getting angrier and angrier because this was a university for uh, developing economies. It really specialised in students from developing economies, developing economies, and all of these theories were from white North American males who've been dead for 20, 30 years, and they didn't speak to the experiences that, that these young people were going through. It also didn't speak to any of my own research. So all of the patterns that I seen weren't contained in this. Um, so I, I launched a very poor rewrite of it. Because uh, I had to learn what I didn't know and then rewrite it in about eight weeks. Uh, but then that kind of launched what I'm doing now. Is it, it was I, I was asked. It, it went very well. I was asked to do it at a, at a, at a university. I did my my PhD in, so I did it again for them and then wrote it a sort of a second version of it, which was far better than the first one. And I'm now in kind of stage three of that, which is rewriting it for corporate needs. It's just very different from the mainstream stuff that is out there. So whilst we get exceptionally good feedback. I've had, I think over 30,000 people have taken the, the global MBA, the online version of this, uh, and exceptionally good feedback. It doesn't sell particularly well because what we talk about isn't what the market thinks works. And so there's kind of that bridge to get past uh, all the time. But that, that's really what I'm trying to do at the moment is, is how, do you, how do you get over that bridge and, and, and teach develop leadership in the way that I think it needs to be developed. And I think that's that's what the patterns and, and historical patterns illustrate. And not do all of this, I would say, fuzzy, uh, feely stuff that the market's asking for, which doesn't work and has never worked. So that's kind of the last five or six years of my life doing that, alongside developing a m- bunch of facilitation techniques that's a, that allows us to do it in a very different way. So it's not me standing up and lecturing. It's, it's all the people doing a huge amount of, uh, of practical work and, and participatory work uh, to learn it rather than just learning a theoretical idea or model. The thing I want to just get us, you know, wet our whistle with was I, um, I think one of my contacts must have liked or commented on one of your posts, and it was around about Simon Sinek, cynic, Simon Sinek. So, and it was particularly about, are you, it said, are you a cynic, cynic? So are you cynical about cynic? I'm going to stop saying those words now, but it, it sort of caught my eye because I'd, I'd had some similar sort of thoughts myself, but it, what I, I really like that post because you took a couple of different sort of, you, you viewed that question a very balanced way do you want to just talk a little bit about your thoughts around this um sort of 
management guru Simon Sinek and what he's doing and and, and your reflections on him. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I started this line of thinking when when I when I designed that first MBA program way back seven or eight years ago, and I, I looked at who who was the top selling leadership writer of that year, and it was Simon Sinek. And so I, I, I think I might have seen his TED talk by then that made him famous, but I hadn't read anything. And I, hadn't, I couldn't find any academic work even referencing him or citing him. So, so I, I, I bought his book, uh, Start With Why, and I watched his, uh, watched his video again and, and kind of read it and thought, well, from an academic perspective, it, it's one of the worst leadership books I've ever read. It's, it's just assertion versus assert, followed by assumption versus followed by assertion followed by assumption. But it was a bestseller. So it was clearly calling for something. Um, and what he's calling for is the regeneration of purpose in people's lives through the practice of leadership. Um, and I think you know, that, that's a call that needs to be well heeded because there's an awful lot of people struggling with with this so that that's kind of the way i have always treated it is it's a worthwhile call but his his discussion of leadership is i mean i don't think it's very good i mean i think at at at, at best it doesn't work and at worst it, it potentially causes harm because what what people can do and, and I've, I've i've had students tell me about this is they they're so busy looking for the why in their jobs and the purpose in their jobs, and they can't find it. So they internalize that they're not good enough, that there's something wrong with them rather than there's something wrong with the systemic uh, practice of organizations and, and leadership and, uh, and things like that, which can, which can lead to some, some quite challenging um, psychological problems for, for, for them. So that, that's kind of my positioning of him. I'll just tell, there's one thing that I think is always worth talking about within Sinek's work. One of his examples is the Wright brothers using their why to, to get to flight before uh, Samuel Pierpoint Langley. So that's one of his, you know, it's in the book, it's in the video, it, it's front and centre. And so when I read the book, I, I went through the references and, and he only had one book uh, that he'd read talking about this right, this search for flight, the Wright brothers, V Langley. And, and so I read it. And and it's so cherry picked. What he, you know, there are descriptions of Langley being quite kind of self interested and pompous and loving money and ego and things. But it, what really happened is he was stuck in a, in a government bureaucratic system where he was getting somebody else to build to build the plane from these blueprints. So it's a classic it's a classic command and control, do what you're told kind of structures. And, and the rights were iterating and, and experimenting and iterating and flying, and if it didn't work, they'd try again. And he knew, Langley knew, that the theory he was working on was wrong, and he asked the rights for help, and they refused. And what, what happened post it, so the rights won, and of course, Sinek's point is they did it for the why, but they launched so many patents to stop anybody else making any money building aeroplanes in the United States. By the time the First World War was going on, American aviation industry had fallen so far behind Europe, who weren't impacted by these patents, that they couldn't actually contribute planes to the fighting. And so they actually, it's one of the biggest lawsuits in terms of wrapping up patents and trying to, to, to allow people to use the theories and the ideas to build planes in American legal history, 
So they did it for the money. <laughs> they didn't do it for the why. And that kind of sums up some of the challenges I have with, with the work. Because Cynic's Golden Circle is, I mean, it's one of the most watched YouTube clips. Or so I've been told, probably by YouTube, but that's what it seems to be, the number of likes. So is this, is the challenge here that sometimes the academic rigor is so hard for people who are busy in the workplace to understand that then there are people that step into the space to go, we'll simplify this. We'll give you three things to think about. And it's near enough is good enough. Is, is that what we're talking about here? Uh, yes, I, I would agree. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure 100% I'll agree with the academic rigor being that rigorous sometimes, but the complications within academia are so difficult for people to get their heads around. So the jargon and the theory and the models and the diagrams, and the, uh, they're, they're really, really difficult to grasp. And so what Sinek is doing is saying, well, here's a, here's a, simple, a simple way of, of doing this that can generalise. Um, and there's always been a market for simple things that can generalise. The challenge is they're not particularly accurate. So you're generalising things that are not accurate. And the opposites of what you're talking about in terms of academia are things that are, are accurate um, and generalisable, but not simple. And, and it's trying to find the right balance between those types of work that is um, central to, to the stuff that I'm trying to do, is, is how do you get the generalizable, accurate stuff into something that's digestible. And sometimes, uh, but that LinkedIn post you said you, you, you read, that's my, that's, that's my sandpit. Yes, right. <laughs> can, can I create in that um, the, the, the certain number of characters that LinkedIn has? Uh, because um, Twitter is too short, but LinkedIn gives me enough to see if I can say, right, here, here's a reasonably complex idea. Can I get a number of people to read it and, and respond to it? So I'm much more interested in what happens below the line. Does it capture an audience? Are people saying what they think? Um, because then that, that's a, an example that of, or a bit of evidence that, that I'm, I'm getting closer to perfecting my craft, which I then, then take into the classroom and say, right, okay, we, we, can, we can learn this in situ rather than via texts and, and things like that. Thank well, thank you for unpacking that. It's it's, it's just a as I say, I felt there was a while there was clearly in your view some some dangers around the cynic approach. It was it was, it was interesting to see how you took that science as a mm, that's, that's that's not great, but there is something here that people need. Now that that that's a that's a huge lesson, isn't it? To sort of rather than dismiss it because of the science, I think to say somewhat some people need something here. Can, can we just sort of segue a little bit staying on your work to and it's with some trepidation we step into this because this is the subject of your phd i believe so uh um we'll, we'll see if we can ask you some some interesting questions but y you've you've written as well i've seen on on linkedin um and you've 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 sent us a, a paper on this ironic leadership ironic organizations i think is the actual topic and i think it's led into some other other areas could you just See if you can share that. You were talking about trying to make things reasonably simple to explain. Could you have a go at that in this forum to say what that is? Yeah, I can. I, 
I think I've got it to a point where it's at least semi-intelligible. Um, <laughs> but you can you can let me know after after I try to explain it. What? Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so so what what we're really looking at here in, in irony is is it, it is a perspective on the world and the performance. And most, I mean, it's easy, relatively easy to explain. If you have a perspective on a certain perspective on the world, so um, you see you see organisations as as a machine. Uh, with cogs and wheels and, and things that can be fixed by managers and stuff like that. Or you might see organization as a culture and you use language like rights and rituals and values and beliefs. And, and so you take a very specific perspective and then you perform in accordance to that perspective. Um, and irony does the same thing, but the perspective the ironists take is expecting absurdities. So instead of looking for evidence that this any one perspective is is real and correct and describes the world accurately. You look for absurdities and contradictions and flaws and follies and, and things like that, where there are gaps between what people say the world is like and, and what it's actually like. So that, that at the perspective level, you're looking for that. You're finding joy in that rather than anxieties in that. And then in the performance level, it's how, how, do, I, how do I close some of this? without getting my head cut off. Because if you're pointing out gaps and foibles and absurdities to power, the chances are you will get your head cut off. So what do you do what do you do about it when you're when you're seeing that? And in my research in the body of the organization, you get lots and lots of people seeing these gaps and either getting their head cut off or not. But but there's there's an awful lot. In the leadership literature it's positioned as the highest level of leadership, but a very few people get there, which is contradictory to my own research, which sees quite a lot of it. But it's whether those people who can do this kind of ironic performance and and perspective taking actually get promoted. And I don't think they do get promoted to the, because they don't take the process of management and the process of organization and the process of leadership seriously enough. What they take is the process of finding the gap seriously. So um, just to help certainly me understand this a little bit more and our listener, I hope, these people, is their intent positive? These are people who are just seeing the world differently, but actually trying to make the system work. Would you say that in their own way? Or, and I'll just sort of, the alternative is the thing people we see sometimes, which you are sort of what Peer being Australian calls white ants. People are actually not helping the system. They're undermining the system. And in, in England, they're sometimes called clever dicks. Clever dicks, exactly. And they are, um, but they're <laughs> undermining the system rather than just finding their own way to, for a personal but organisational success. Or am I oversimplifying? Um, no, you're not. I mean, this is the, this is the real challenge with, with the ironic perspective, the ironic performance, or let's call it the ironic personality to, to shorthand it. So the real challenge with the ironic personality is, is it always risks being interpreted both ways? Um, so you have one hand, you have the snorkel of sanity. You know, it's the one person who says, look at this absurdity, look at, look at the folly, look at, look at this stuff that everybody's taking seriously. It's absurd. And everyone goes, oh, my God, yes, it is. Thank, thank you. You've given us the air brilliance. And the other hand, it's the devil's mark, is you're, you're pointing it out in order to um, 
for self-interest, for, for opportunities to, to reconstruct the system in a way that's instrumentally rational or gives you advantages in that reconstruction. So, And also the devil's mark is that when you point out the absurdity, you risk it being read as sarcasm. So sarcasm, it means to strip the flesh. It's, it's an attack on somebody. So it's the, oh, this is absurdity and you're fools for creating it and you're fools, you're to blame. That's why the head cutting off becomes quite challenging. Now, um, Pia talked about the clever dick in the UK, and I think that's worth mentioning as well, because um, dick was historically the term for uh, the rogue character. So if you had Tom, the fool, you had Dick, the rogue, and you had Harry, almost the destroyer, to Harry and to, and to destroy. So <laughs> Dick, Dick became the, the, the rogue, the rascal, the rapscallion, the wit, the rake, the, that, kind of, that kind of character emerging out of the... Because Tom, Dick and Harry were the names of the poor. So you had this roguish, witty character coming out of these poor masses who was able to, to trick... The, the wealthier into doing what he wanted. And, and that's partly where, where we go. So the, the, the tricky dick or the, the, and then re, almost re, um, reframed as the toxic rogue in, in the dick or, uh, the fool again in the dickhead. That, that all comes <laughs> from the same interpretation of, of, of what it means to be human and do this kind of work as, as the ironist does. And I think it's uh, I, I've, I find it fascinating because all organisations they institutionalise you. You know, you go in as a as an individual with a set of beliefs, and the culture starts. It starts to stain your skin for good or bad, and you are institutionalised. I remember as a teacher, I was institutionalised as a teacher. That's why I left, and then I can see that, particularly in a role more as a third-party consultant, you can see different cultures in the way that people that you've known for years, how their behavior begins to to change. And is some of that fear-based as well? Because it's in a competitive system and people want to be rewarded for their work. Is some of that to comply with the system rules in order to be successful and secure? Yeah, for some for some people, yes, but not for everybody. So within within the leadership development literature, you're you're looking at a developmental journey where first of all you're you know you're you're young, you come in, you're opportunistic. Oh, let's do that. Let's you know you're foolish. <laughs> Let me, I don't care who I upset. I'm going to go and do that. And we've all been there. Oh, I'm going to do that, and everybody else goes oh, and you upset them. And then 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 you, then you become a diplomat where you you still you, you're now beginning to go right. Okay, how do I fit in? How do I comply? How do I do this with, without? And then as you go through that institutionalization uh, process, you first of all you become what the literature calls an expert. So so you get you go through your training, you get all your tick boxes, you certifications and accreditations, and you're seen as an expert in a certain area. And then you realise after a while, if and not everybody gets past this stage but you realize your expertise but doesn't actually create a huge amount of value. It acts as a blocker because everything has to go through you before a decision is made, etc. And then you go beyond that and you become, what, again, what the literature calls an achiever. And the achiever, I think, is what you're talking about, where you are fully institutionalized. 
context. You're, you're, you're developing teams to create organizational value within the system that's currently constructed. So that's what you're doing. What you possibly went through, Pia, is a subjective shift into individualism, where you're now beginning to step outside the system and see its flaws. And this is the first step, and this is the early step into irony. You step outside the system, you see its flaws. Um, And this is partly, if you don't have the performative quality to get others to understand the flaws, you tend to leave or you tend to get your head cut off because you're only seeing someone pointing out the flaws and breaking the rules rather than somebody who creates a network of connections. And and if you do that correctly, you would go into that network and say, right, redescribe the flaw or the absurdity in a way that they understand and say, well, if we correct this, what's in it for you? And if you can make a big enough network of what's in it for you and strategize around that, then you can start making a difference. And what, what tends to happen is that's a later stage of development. Initially, you know, the, the individualist is a bit like that opportunist that I, I spoke of earlier. They're like, oh, we can fix this management challenge if we just do this. And they upset people at a much higher level of the organization rather than the frontline workers that you upset when you're an opportunist. So it kind, of, it kind of repeats itself. This so reminds me of, made me think of two people I encountered in my um, corporate life, because it was clearly absurd. I think that's one thing I would say, Richard, as, as you said, Pierre, there's so much in the organisation that's utterly ridiculous. And um, you, you'd have to be really blind to miss it. But it's, But one person said to me, Dan, just play the game, you know, just play at the forecast time, downplay it. And I thought, I'm not interested in that. Another guy, was he was the one that really reminded me when you, when you use that irony thing. He saw the absurdity, pointed it out, but managed to sort of work out his own way of working with it, mostly through wit and humor. And he brought people along with him who he would sort of see the absurdity and help us to navigate that. And that sort of appealed to me a little bit more, but without a doubt, Person B had a bit more harder time in the organization than person A, who just said, keep your head down and play the game, um, which is, I suppose, part of the absurdity of the system. But well, it, it, it is part of the those absurdity. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and I, I would suggest there are three. There, there's the, the, what I would call the games player, which is your person A. So they, they work out where the power and the money is. They keep their head down. They follow the power and the money, and they, they make a, a nice career for themselves. So there's that. You've then got the, the role player. Or the role actor um, who just goes, right, when I'm here, I have to behave like that. When I'm there, I have to behave like the other when I'm here. And they, they don't really they don't really care about anything other than survival and, and, and not getting so stressed. And they, you know, they're, they're, they're quite vital for an organization because they do they do pass information through they, they do create channels of, of information exchange. And then the ironist is the one with the elegance and the wit and all of this kind of stuff who does make things happen. And what you would normally find within the body of the organization, that, that they would be deeply connected with all kinds of people who want to work with them, but they won't be being perceived as leadership material by those higher up because there's that kind of lack of seriousness in their attitude. And the, yeah, there's a sort of ironic network creates around them. That, uh, But I think my what I reflect to is that person really got stuff done. 
they saw that it was their intent was good. They were serving. We were in a pharma company at the time, serving patients. They really got things done, but it was it was somehow, as you say, not with the blessing of the people up above who wanted person A a little bit more. The the, the work that I did and the research that I did, this was in a in a, in a big steelworks, um, and it was going through this this massive transformation. Uh, where it was much more about the strong culture, love your company, love your job, self-management, agile kind of stuff, but within the steelworks environment. And, of course, still workers are very – they're not used to that kind of stuff. And so the research – and we, 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 we were researching for about 14 years as a team. And what we found was that the ones who were creating the most value for the organisations, the one that were making the, the transformation work, poked fun at absolutely everything. They didn't take anything seriously at all, but everybody wanted to work with them because they had a reputation for solving all of these complex challenges that were constantly coming up. But the question is, were they perceived by management as as doing that work? And probably not, because a lot of it, by its nature, is done on the backstage. Um, it's done behind. It's done beyond the glare of the management spotlight. Um, so they're working behind the scenes to do this stuff. In the, in the dark a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, the, the data that I have pretty much, I mean, I, I would say very clearly indicates that they are the most valuable people an organisation has because they do everything in context, and that's absolutely vital. But if you choose to take that perspective on life, you are also potentially harming your chances of climbing the greasy pole and getting to the top. And and what is the higher intent of individuals who are practicing that that ironic behaviour? Is it to serve the the greater needs of the people they lead? Is it to serve their own intellectual fun? Is it to serve the organisation? What what's the purpose? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think that there is it is serving their own intellectual fun, but it's their intellectual fun in finding the absurdities. It's not their intellectual fun in in creating answers. So the way the way that I look at it is the, the the ironist always stands with his back to the future because what they can do is look at where we are now and see the absurdities, but they're not for a second suggesting they have the capacity to create the answers. What they can do is facilitate a, a, a kind of collective creativity to deal with the absurdities and and move into the future in a more meaningful way. So so they are absolutely blind as to what the future might hold, and they're quite comfortable with that. Um, and they're also, their intellectual wit and they're, they're, they're kind of the pleasure they take in their intellect is only about uh, interrogating the flaws in the present, not saying that they know what the answer is in the future and being held up as this kind of great leader that, that that's taking everyone into a into a preformed vision of of, um, of, of a, a wonderful horizon that we're all going to reach. They they have absolutely they don't want to even go there at all. They go the horizon is there. Don't know what it looks like. Don't know how far away it is. Don't know what it's going to take to get there. But what I do know is what we're doing now doesn't allow us to see anywhere near far enough into the future to to get close to where that horizon is. Richard, it's sort of cryptic question, but do, do, when you're studying ironic ironic leaders, do you do you see any of yourself in in uh, in that? Is there some of this self study? <laughs> um, I, they're, they're kind of so, so part of 
One of the big quotes around irony is you can't possibly study irony without some of it rubbing off on yourself. <laughs> um, and I think you know, that's the case because because you have to become aware of your performance. That's part of it. And you have to be, but you're also becoming very aware of, look, of, of looking for absurdities everywhere. So so it's it's kind of an accelerator of how to get to that stance, but only only within certain aspects of my life. I mean, other aspects, I'm as naive as anybody. It's only <laughs> when it comes to organization and, and leadership um, concepts and things that I can do it. In other areas of my life, I, I'm, I'm reliant on other experts to tell me the, the way they think the world is because I can't see the absurdities. We see, I mean, a lot of the work that we do, we see that, um, particularly with the changes in the way that people are working with hybrid um, and geographically disparate businesses, people are seeking connection. Does, does this enable connection in some ways as human beings, particularly in teams, or does it sometimes put a spanner in the works for that? And does it sometimes actually create a bit of disconnection because you're a little aloof, or does it actually sometimes psychologically bring the team together so so it's both and i think so so um clearly it's a bonding mechanism so if you if you've seen uh, the world in a way that somebody else has hasn't seen and you present it and it's deconstructed by others around you they all are in on this this deconstruction and there, there's a lot of writing about how tightly it bonds communities together uh, it very often as well, kind of minority communities in, in a majority system, it binds them together. So it clearly does that. But it also can make you seem very, very arrogant and egotistical. Um, uh, sort of you're sitting above the world and, and pronouncing on down all you foolish people that you can't see. You can't see what I see. And, and they, but they, that would be the ironist that doesn't perform. That's the ironist that just sits up and goes, oh, you idiots, you idiots. You. The ironist that performs creates that bond. And again, within, I mean, this is more the American interpretation of irony, but within that for, uh, literature and philosophy, it's regarded as one of the tightest social bonding mechanisms there is. See, decon finding a group that's deconstructed in irony and uses that to bond with each other. It, it's a really powerful way of doing it. That's fascinating. I just having been there, I think myself a fair bit, where you just look at the organisation and just think, "This is this is absurd. What what the hell is going on here?" Um, I think a lot of people in organisations are probably switched onto that, and there it actually leads to quite a bit of suffering to be in to try to work in that system when you see it like that. This might be oversimplifying, but what would you advise people to do to be able to? release themselves from that suffering, if you like, to, to engage with the system in a different way if they're feeling stuck? Well, you're, you're almost leaping me back to Sinek now and, and this notion of um, <laughs> don't, don't expect an absurd system to create purpose into your, in your life. It's not going to create this. You're not going to find your why in an absurd system. You're not going to find your meaning. You're not going to find your purpose. Um, so the protective, the first aspect of the protective mechanism, I think, is that. It's not there in an absurd system. It might be in an early stage startup that's kind of, yeah, that really is tightly focused on doing something different. It's not going to be in a complex global organization because absurdity is going to be everywhere. So don't look, don't look for that. 
but expect the unexpected, expect the absurdities, and don't meet it with, oh, my God, everything's terrible. Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, meet it with a wry smile. You know, just go, okay, here's, here's another one. It, this is this is just another thing of what I expected, and you know we, the three of us are of a certain age. I mean, there's a certain maturity with this. Is is we talk from bitter experience. We've we've been there. We've seen it. We've done it. What you tend to find, um, partly because of um, you know texts a bit like Cinex and and this kind of purpose movement and uh, really the positive psychology purpose movement that's really quite dominant in leadership at the moment is. Yeah, go and go and find your purpose within these systems. And and younger people who are they they're not experienced with the complexity of organizational systems. I think they get lost trying to find something that's they're not going to find where they're looking. And I think to go back to Piers' point with the, the hybrid teams, well, what we actually found when we were working from home was purpose outside the organization again. We started connecting with communities in a different way. And we started, and so we we saw that it wasn't where we were looking, and we don't really to go back to the notion of cynical again. We've become more cynical as a whole, including the young, that the organisation can provide it for us, and we're looking for something else. Now, I think there's something else. I think where purpose lies within the organisation is in teams almost doing the ironic work themselves. Where what is the absurdity you're trying to to solve? It could be a customer need. It could be a, an internal challenge. And being given the the kind of given the permission to go well, okay, let let's see where if you found one, let's see where you might take the solutions. So I think you know a lot of of where I would be developing people is you know don't follow agile process to the letter. Make sure you you bring that wry smile and that humour and that wit to the discussions and see what emerges. And there's a whole bunch of techniques and practices that you can use to enable the laughter to to emerge. And from that laughter, you get really fascinating insights. Not necessarily from the most ironic person in the group, from somebody else who sees something different. And from that, you can start creating really powerful new value. I think. Richard, I think that's a fantastic place to um, to come to an end. But um, where could people go to get more thinking like this? Yeah, follow follow me on LinkedIn would be would be a first thing because I do not not at the moment because I've been very busy the last three or four weeks. But usually post quite a lot on 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 absurdities and organisations and leadership and management and stuff like that. Uh, EQLab.co is the website that I um, associated with, as is the HumanFactor.net. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it at the moment in terms of my output into the the, the virtual world. Yeah. Sounds perfect, Richard. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been yeah, it's been as fascinating as well. Exercise day, grey matter. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. And thank thank you so much for being with us. I think our listeners will find that hugely valuable. So um, thank you for being with us, and uh, we'll look. We may see you again, or we not me at some point in the future if we can drag you back. Thanks very much for inviting me. This took me back to my corporate days, Pierre. This is this really resonated because I think I'm one of those people and um, started to see, like a lot of people did, um, absurdity in the system. I mentioned a couple of people I met actually on my travels in the in the US working there, and I definitely did find that you you see true absurdity. I mean, really, really 
ridiculous decisions being made by people many thousands of miles away that make zero sense. And it, it, there's no explaining it. And uh, these are very well-paid, purportedly you know, intelligent people. And it's, it, it can only be put down to absurdity. And I love the way he said, take it with a wry smile. But I definitely, as he said, I've, you start, I've found a couple of times in my life purpose outside the organization. You know, either right, I'm just going to really pay attention to my customers, to the patients I'm serving. Um, in one case, I just I volunteered as an advocate for people with learning disabilities and trained up in that and found my purpose in that. And it was really weird how it was sort of work just faded a little bit. The, you know, the absurdity faded in my mind in terms of importance because I had these people to look after. But I, I definitely, as he said, sought purpose outside the organization. It certainly wasn't coming from from within as um as some people think it should do you know the, the old joke is about drinking the kool-aid isn't it you know and <laughs> and, and um yeah I, I think that i think it was interesting there's a couple of a couple of things that stood out that for me right but i think the flaws in simon cynic and in terms of finding real purpose in your work i mean i think that my view on it is you need to find purpose in yourself and for yourself and and not as an externalized thing because you're only ever probably going to be disappointed. I mean, I remember one of my very first leadership programs that I observed with Rob Metcalf has been on this program. And and Rob had worked with this guy to get his um, his purpose and then he announced, he said, it's fantastic because I'm resigning tomorrow. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> because actually that was for him, was like there were, there were you know, they, they were – they were misaligned. But another point too is is that and 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 I challenged Richard a little bit on this. The, the the difficult part of it is that academic research is dry. You know, there's a big part once you sort of get into you do any masters or PhD in behavioral science, it has to be empirically proved and evidence based. So this gets pushed into your brain again and again and again. What's the theory that backs it up what's the research in it and so you know I, I think Richard's probably right on the money some of the stuff that Sinek's done is probably only 60% there but he's got the capacity to reach into people's hearts and minds sometimes with the most banal of comments that, that and his quotes that you know seriously we, we could be we could be millionaires if we came up with a few of those. But the thing is, is that, that academic stuff could be dry and and therefore doesn't get paid attention to, even though it probably is the much more rigorous. And therefore, this stuff is like popular psychology. It appeals. It appeals. People can see something in themselves in it. So it's a it's a bit of a bind, really. It is. And the you're right. And the I mean, I really like the fact that he said that the people must have a hunger for what he's talking about. And, you know, as you say, one of his his quotes are getting, to be honest with you, quite banana. He says, you know, one of them is, great companies don't hire skilled people and motivate them. They hire already motivated people and inspire them. I'm pretty sure if I put that on, um, on, on LinkedIn, on you, LinkedIn get about, you get about three likes. Maybe, and they'd be from family. And then I'd get one of my mates in the background saying, what are you talking about? So, um, but there's clearly a need for this. There's clearly a need. And, and actually, that idea of, of why and purpose 
uh, he's you know so richard said it can be damaging in times i could imagine because it sort of it challenges you to seek a higher order of leadership than you're probably enjoying at that time so it and it can that can lead to dissatisfaction but it in itself is is a useful thing and and Sinex done some good work there. Sinex has done good work, I think, in, in putting that into people's people's practices and into their minds. And on the other flip side of it, we've got a lot of gurus in, in the leadership industry and in, in that motivation. And because people are looking for something, then when something is really agreeable to listen to, you you know, you're putting them on a pedestal and your bias is to believe them before they've even said anything. And it becomes a business of that rather than sticking to proper researched and, uh, and evidence-based information. So I can it, it, at 100% um, get that. It's harder. You know, we're always sometimes we like to be seduced and we like to be seduced by things that make us feel good. And, um, and that's an age-old model. So we've just got to be a little, you know, Keep 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 the wry smile, and I think the the absurdity <laughs> and the irony of it is keeps your feet flat on the floor. You know, it keeps there's a groundedness to it that I really like. And I think you know, Richard said, you know, when it becomes laced with sarcasm, then it could be a bit dangerous. But you know, for yourself, you can blow yourself up. But if it's the way of being able to get a really objective view. And just go okay. Here we are. Yes, <laughs> that's and, yeah. And being being tough on the facts, but having a wry smile about them. But I think it is also about intent. That if you if you if you stay in that, it's not a good place to be. To be constantly dissatisfied and undermining things. You know, um, you know Eckhart Tolle's three options. You know, if you don't like something, change it, get out of it, or learn to like it. You know staying in there and not liking it and undermining and white anting is is not is not good for anyone um so yeah one 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 to watch for but i have also seen as he said that you can have a network of people who are a little bit who have this irony and you can really connect and i think that's my sort of as i think about it, another way to find comfort in these places is to build a team and a network around you that has the right intent but can sort of live in this ironic space have a have a language and a and a way of doing things but still move forward and and that's i think where a team can sort of somehow encapsulate itself serve the organization but not be like it and i think that's another way in which teams can create a microclimate for themselves where they can get things done despite yeah and the final bit i would say is that sometimes the tough, lonely part of leadership is that you are accountable. You get to see things that other people don't see. You get closer to the truth and you get caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, that is absurd in itself, but your intent is to lead the people that you're with and that's the direction you're going and sometimes you have to suck that up and it is a lonely. That is a, that's a, that's a lonely place to be, but... That's, the, that's some of the darker side of leadership. You, you can't. You are responsible and you're accountable, and it's 
it's not always not always straight or plain sailing yeah yeah and this this can be a, a route towards that making sense and making making headway i think a little bit like we talked about bernadette you have that responsibility don't you so um really fascinating that was a real mind bender i think we've enjoyed a bit of a, bit of a joust there with uh, with mm. richard Fant- fantastic work and a really and a new angle but that is it for this episode you can find show notes and resources at squadify.net just click on the we not leave podcast link if you've enjoyed the show please do share the love and recommend it to your friends if you'd like to contribute to the show just email us at we not me pod at gmail.com we not me is produced by mark stedman of origin thank you so much for listening it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me